This is Mechanically Incorrect, a science, engineering, and education podcast like no other, where we talk the good, the bad, and ugly of academia, industry, and research. Mechanically Incorrect is a podcast conceived by the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Views expressed are solely those of each speaker. And we mean that. I'm Neil Coker. I'm Billy Oates. Let's talk shop. All right. Welcome, welcome. So today we are here with Assistant Professor Daniel Quinn from the University of Virginia. He is going to be one of our seminar speakers today who's going to be giving a talk on, uh, and I quote, Embodied Intelligence in RoboFish. Now, uh, quick introduction, uh, Professor Quinn first came to UVA as an undergrad in 2006. <coughs> After graduating with a BS in aerospace engineering, he attended Princeton University and completed a PhD in the hydrodynamics lab, working on bio-inspired propulsion. While at Princeton, Quinn was also a visiting fellow at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University, for his doctoral work, Professor Quinn was awarded the American Physical Society's Andreas Akrovos Dissertation Award in Fluid Dynamics. He went on to become a postdoctoral fellow in the Bio-Inspired Research and Design Group at Stanford University, studying the stability characteristics of birds flying in turbulent gusts. Professor Quinn joined the UVA faculty in 2017. He is a member of the Link Lab, a group of researchers studying cyber-physical systems, particularly autonomous vehicles, body sensor networks, and smart homes. And that comes straight from the UVA website. I did not write that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Professor Quinn, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the visit so far. So, looking forward to the talk this afternoon. Me too. And I just turned off of our, our intro music, which is still playing at a low level in the background. So I hope everyone likes surf rock. So, all right. So, Dan, you're speaking to a non-engineer here. You've got a PhD sitting to the left of you and a non-engineer uh, administrative professional here. So in layman's terms, I actually have quite a few questions I want to ask you. But uh, first of all, um, I, I guess I'll start with where did your, fi your fascination in bio-inspired robots uh, come from? Because you know, this is obviously an excuse me, interdisciplinary field uh, that you know, we have some research with here as well. Um, but I'm just curious where that started for you. And I'll get to why fish specifically in a minute here, but I just kind of want to know um, where this interest originated from and what practical applications uh, you've gleaned from that over the years. Well, it started as, as an undergrad. I was volunteering in a lab that was studying this, and I really kind of fell in love with the topic, thinking about what, what we can learn from biology as far as engineers and thinking about just the time scale that we've been trying to solve problems and the time scale that animals have been trying to solve problems, and it kind of seems like a no-brainer that we'd look to them for some inspiration since they've been working on this a lot longer. And then I volunteered for, or not volunteered, I, I worked in a, in a, the Museum of Comparative Zoology for a summer, and that's when I, I really started to get hooked. It was really fun to see biologists studying all different kinds of fish and you know what they had to teach us, and it was a lot of fun, so I stuck with it. So what was that experience like at Harvard? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, your bio was the first I'd even heard of the uh, <coughs> museum, so I'm, I'm just interested as you know what specific type of work 
were you conducting while you were there? Yeah, I mean, it was unreal to work there because we had a lab space, but there was a little, you go down a hallway through a secret entrance and then you end up in, in the museum. And then, so in the basement of the museum, uh, if you've ever worked in a museum, is, is like another museum, a secret museum inside of the museum because it's all the things that aren't currently on display. So they had this basement full of all these fish specimens from you know, hunt the past few hundred years uh, preserved in ethyl alcohol. And so we were studying, I kind of came in as a fluid dynamics person to help think about how the water moves around fish and use fluid dynamics models to think about why fish are built the way they are. So I got to work with people who know, know a lot more about fish than me, and I know more about water than them, and we kind of found the middle ground. So I'm curious, what are the practical problems that fish have been working to solve that uh, humans have yet to crack? Because... Well, they, they've been, uh, they swim much more efficiently over a wide range of speeds than human vehicles. Human vehicles are typically designed to, at one cruise speed, you know, they're very efficient at one cruise speed, even more so than many fish. But fish swim efficiently over a wide range of speeds, and they also do it much quieter. They're much stealthier than current man-made machines, which, you know, we worry about the noise signature of submarines for long distances because they're so noisy. A fish, you can be really close to it and barely hear it. Interesting. So is there a sort of uh, noise pollution problem that affects the ecology of the ocean? I mean, I, I apologize if that's a stupid question. But, no, it's uh, not. I mean, I think people think more about it in aerial space. I think, you know, you've heard drones at the beach. They're, they're pretty annoying and whiny. I think people would love to learn from, say, owls who fly almost silently, I think it would be much better in terms of noise pollution if we could have aerial drones that flew like owls. Uh, underwater, I, no, I don't think noise pollution is, as, as far as I know, a big deal underwater. So that's more military applications. People are thinking about noise signature. They want to be quieter. Well, that always makes sense from a military perspective. Um, yeah, I, I am curious because I, I, it's not something I've really thought much about as far as the, the what, what sort of effect on impact on ecosystems does noise pollution have, generally speaking? A huge impact. I mean, it's really actually difficult to study natural ecosystems with current underwater robotics because you swim up with these lab propellers, all the fish swim away, and then your finding is, oh, there are no fish that live here. But, of course, that, that that's not true. You just scared them all off. So that's another application people are excited about with quieter, less invasive underwater robots is you could actually study these ecosystems in a way that you currently can't. So does it sort of help to restore the natural balance a little bit because we're creating less disruption underwater so animals are more likely to behave as they would otherwise without our interference? I mean, Yes, yeah, there are the huge sustainability uh, implications that if you could swim amongst the fish non-invasively you could learn much more about their habitat their ecosystem you could design more sustainable you know offshore techniques uh think more about the impacts of overfishing and that kind of thing so my next follow-up question now that you've established that is um what exactly is embodied intelligence uh for your purposes uh explain it to the dummy in the room me um <laughs> Well, my, my background is in, I'm, I really 
more physics, especially fluid physics, so thinking about how liquids and gases move and the math that governs how they move. That's my background. And then getting into the... So what I study is what someone like me can offer to the robotics world. And one thing we can offer is if you have a better physical model of your robot and the fluid around it, then you can design better ways to control the robot. You can build uh, better hardware. So embodied intelligence is this idea that instead of just throwing a bunch of traditional forms of intelligence like machine learning and you know con- carefully designed controllers, that if you build the physics into your design, then you can create a, a more efficient robot. Swell. And how does that, I mean, I, I, I guess like you probably just answered the question. Yeah, well, no. what, what, give me an example of yeah. how that will work as applied to a, a robotic tuna, for instance. Yeah, so you, you know, you've got some robo-tuna, and it's got some fins it can flap. One thing you could do is just throw a whole bunch of uh, machine learning algorithms at it and try to get it to learn how it should move its fins to swim forward. Um, another way you could do it is you could try to design, use the math of fluid dynamics and figure out, okay, if I flap this fin back and forth at this speed and this frequency, then I'm going to be able to swim forward with at this speed and and not correct along the way those are two very different approaches and embodied intelligence is is the the trying to combine those two so let me know a little bit about the physics about what i expect to happen when i move this fin based on some math and then also i'm going to combine it with some more traditional control and see if we can build a a better robot and how long have you been working on this specific project for? Um, I guess a, two or three years now. This trying to build a RoboTuna with embodied intelligence. So in our case, what we're looking at is the stiffness of the tail. So roboticists come, you know, people have been trying to build RoboFish for a couple of decades, and one question that comes up is, well, how stiff should we make the tail? And so they come to someone like me who studies you know, fluid dynamics, and they say, well... Should I make it really stiff? Should I make it soft? And and then, so we come in and we do a bunch of experiments. And the what we eventually realized is that there's really no one best stiffness. There's no good answer because it depends how fast you want to swim. So if you want to swim faster, you need a stiffer tail. If you want to swim slower, you really would want a softer tail. So that's a good opportunity for embodied intelligence where we, we c- discovered some physical principle and then we can combine that with the what the roboticists were designing into their fish and build imagine some kind of robot that adjusts its stiffness on the fly. So, so I'm curious about um, the the side of the design side. So yeah. coming back when you were talking about working in the museum, yeah. So you have access to all these cool fish, right? And so, from my perspective in structures and materials, we can take pictures of microstructure or um, all, with all the sorts of microscopes. So you get really interesting images to look at geometry. But then there's a big jump from geometry and structure to properties. And so do you get a broken pot at these fish? Or do you, do you have to just uh, infer some things from the geometry of the fish? What Whatever information can you get out? Yeah, I mean, especially someone like me, we've been studying stiffness. It's almost impossible to get that from mm-hmm. a dead fish because mm-hmm. you don't know. First of all, you know the 
chemical composition changes after mm-hmm. they die. So even if you even if you could somehow just measure the fish with some bending test, it's mm-hmm. not the real stiffness because it changed after the fish died. And even if you had a live fish, sometimes they do this, they'll like anesthetize a fish and then try to measure its stiffness. That doesn't really make sense either because mm-hmm. when the muscles are being actuated, it changes the effective stiffness of the fish. So it's actually a really hard problem to know even something simple like how stiff is the fish. We, we, we really honestly don't know. So that's where robotics comes in. Is we can design an experiment to test different stiffness levels in a very repeatable way that okay. you couldn't do with a real fish. Or you can at least set up the fluid dynamic environment with the aer- or aerodynamic forces with this robot and then try to replicate what you think the fish would do. Yeah. But... Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, we we talk a lot about not doing biomimicry, but bioinspiration. That mm-hmm. we we don't actually know whether we're designing a robot that's as stiff as a fish because we don't even know how stiff the fish is. But yeah. but we can look at the fish and say, well, it looks like it's flexible. Let's make a soft mm-hmm. robot mm-hmm. and then study how flexibility affects it. So it, you're right that we're not really mimicking the fish, but that's not really our intent. It's more to Mm-hmm. draw inspiration from them and then study how to build a better robot. I'm curious about how much uh, hands-on interaction you, you get today with living fish uh, being, a, you know, in at UVA, you're not exactly near the beach. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I know that you, um, as you said, you were uh, working at the uh, Museum of Comparative Zoology mm-hmm. uh, some years prior, but... Uh, as far as living references now, um, how does that work? Are you working completely off of computer Im- computer modeling now? or These days, there's no fish, and I don't... Yeah, there's no live animals in my lab. I've worked in lab, like you said, in, in this fish lab where they had both dead and alive. They had live fish that they'd swim in their water channel. I worked in a bird lab where we had live birds that they'd fly in wind tunnels and in uh, gust generators and... Worked with the birds, got pooped on by birds. You know, that was really, uh, you know, in it's the weeds with the birds. Experiment. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you were in the shit with the birds, man. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but uh, these days, no live animals. But we do experimental work. It's not. Uh, we do some computer models, but a lot of it is experimental in a water channel. So we've got set up a water channel, which is essentially a treadmill for our swimming robots, and then watch them swim and measure forces and measure what the flow is doing around them. So one question around that that I'm always interested of folks working in your area is there's a, I guess it's a famous paper, I'm not sure. Um, a colleague of mine at Caltech mentioned it. I can't remember if this one came out of Caltech, but uh, it's, I think it was salmon. Took dead salmon and put it in a tow tank. And if you put a disturbance in front of it, you could get this dead fish to swim upstream. Yeah. And uh, I just found that to be one of the most fascinating designs of getting this, whether it's the stiffness or the kinematics of the fish, to do that. Yeah. So I have a screenshot of that in my yeah. talk today. I, th- yeah. I think it was uh, okay. Yeah, I think it was trout, and they had a dead trout, mm-hmm. and okay. in this series of in the wake of behind a mm-hmm. cylinder or something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it actually swims with no control at all. I think that's a perfect example of embodied intelligence because mm-hmm. it's. There's no intelligence there. There's no traditional cognitive intelligence. There's no neural circuit there. Yeah. But just because of the way it's designed, it acts intelligent. So 
it's imbued with some form of intelligence by the physics. So how, do you remember, because it's been a while since I looked at that paper, but when you're talking about being able to swim at different speeds, um, how much can you do with a dead fish in terms of swimming under different disturbances? Was it fairly limited at certain regions? Yeah, I don't, do remember? I don't know that the details I, I mean i remember that the, the big result to come out of that was that it worked at all I yeah mean, you can't because you're pretty restricted you can't there's nothing you can change there are no inputs you know mm-hmm. i mean the, mm-hmm. it's just a pa- totally passive fish so it will change if the fish is a little bit longer or you know more flexible but but you don't have the kind of control that you'd want i think that's where embodied intelligence really comes in is you know, that's some form of physical intelligence from just the passive structure. You want to combine that with some control. I don't, Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of times that you could have, uh, you know, that you could get the outcome you want based on just physics alone. You kind of need to add some control. Mm -hmm. That's not always true. Like you've probably seen these strand beasts by Theo Jansen, these giant uh, artsy structures that walk on the beach. Oh yeah. And uh, I'm up now. <laughs> those are uh, those, there's no control there. So if uh-huh. your end outcome is some kind of artistic goal like that, then that's, right. that might be all you need. But I guess if you understand the principles of that enough, then if the environment changes, you could adjust the stiffness or kinematics, or maybe it has to do mm. with geometry as well. Um, I assume you could at least un- infer a few of these things so it is intelligent. And maybe that's some of the things that you're looking at. That's fair. You're saying you, you could change the passive Yeah, properties. so say if you can swim upstream under certain conditions, Yeah. that's pretty efficient, right? right? Dead fish. So then if you change your environment or if you want to go faster, is it understood how you would tweak things to make this fish swim faster with just passive motion mm-hmm. yeah i guess yeah. it's a loose term in terms of passive right because then you you'd have to change something yeah, at that point you're um, controlling it anyway but yeah but, but you're right that you're not actively putting energy into the system maybe yeah that starts to sound more like a energy harvester people already do this or you're trying to harvest energy from the environment mm-hmm. and then at different flow speeds, maybe you want to tune your stiffness so that you vibrate differently. Mm-hmm. We looked at this in some small study where, when I was at Eglin Air Force Base one summer, they were uh, they were just taking latex and spreading mm-hmm. it over this ellipse. This was back when MAVs were a really a big thing. And in, in my area, we do active materials, smart materials, so I said, why don't we take this dielectrical elastomer, stretch it over, and you can put electrodes on it. And so you, you have like a drum, mm-hmm. but with electrodes. So you put electricity on it, and it will just compress through the membrane so it becomes less tense. So yeah. the stiffness is lower. So if it's in an aerodynamic environment and that stiffness changes from electricity, then you get a different uh, curvature in the lift and drag changes so i would think it'd be great if you can do this with fish but people still don't know how to make true artificial muscle it's Mm -hmm. still inefficient um but i I think the same principle holds there if you could integrate it into the fish yeah no i think you're absolutely right Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so what would be the practical benefit of doing so? I mean, you're going to explain it for, for the layperson in the room. Well, I think you, you could be a lot more efficient if you... Because this experiment he's referring to is where uh, the, you have a dead fish and then it swims. So the, there's no energy getting put into the fish. It's entirely just pulling energy out of the, the vortice, the eddies in the flow. So that's 100% free energy. I mean, you're not, uh-huh. you're not, putting any, you're not using any battery. You're, you're using zero energy. And then we were saying that uh, um, you, you would probably need to add a little bit of battery if you wanted it to do a certain thing, like you wanted it to turn. Yeah, like a little jolt or something to yeah. get it going. But if you're getting a, you know, 60% of the energy you need just out of the eddies in the flow and you provide the last 40%, that's a huge savings. It'd be like, imagine if you had a ship or something and this fish behind it, and you get the conditions just right, this dead fish would follow the ship forever with no energy, just due to the disturbances from the fluid. So it is pulling in energy, I guess. You know, energy is conserved. But I I could see that, for instance, if you're going to use the ship analogy, you could, for instance, uh, make barges or design barges that... uh, can follow a path and yeah. wouldn't have to waste any fuel or energy on them to, to keep them uh, in motion in theory. Mm-hmm. Of course, I know you also have currents and flows of the ocean that work against that, so I, I, I don't know how that would factor in. But um, it's an interesting uh, interesting proposition, Billy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Just solved shipping. The shipping. Yeah, there you go. I don't know why we have all these supply chain. I don't know all these supply chain issues that are still. We're still dealing with two years into COVID. It was only that easy. If we had someone here that's manufacturing, they would probably explain why that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I'm sure. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Dan, is I do have this highlighted on my paper here. Is just your note about. Just uh, could you tell us a little bit about Link Lab? Because uh, caught my eye. Sounds interesting. Uh, what's your background with? Uh, first of all, what is Link Lab, and you know what is your background there? So it's a it's a physical space at UVA that's trying to promote and catalyze interdisciplinary work. So there are several different engineering departments that sit there, like civil and electrical and computer and mechanical and aerospace, and. There are faculty from those departments that have offices there. There are grad students that have desks there. And at its core, that, that's what it is. It's just a physical space to you know, get us talking to each other based on all these studies that even if someone's on a different floor than you, you're, you're not going to collaborate with them. You, know, that you really need to see people. It's really important. And uh, so far, it's been very successful. I mean, there's been a lot of proposals that come out of it, a lot of papers just from the fact that we're uh, sitting together, you know, close proximity. And then the, the pillars that the original intent of Link Lab was to look at smart homes and uh, autonomous vehicles and smart health as kind of these three topic areas. But it's, it's pretty fluid. I mean, it's mostly just about connecting people. So this area of, um, <coughs> I think, cyber-physical is still a pretty big and pretty broad yeah. Area. So I'm wondering, are That's there? That's part of why I brought it up. Are yeah. You, are you, 
thinking there, you know, if you're if you're building these robotic systems, where in the water or air, and uh, how they would interact with humans or homes and things of that nature. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the what makes it cyber physical is that there's some physical component, like some robot, but then there's some cyber component, like it's there's some network going on. So. We just got a grant to look at schooling robofish. So in my mind, that's a, starting to get towards a cyber-physical system where we've got these individual robofish, but they're all kind of networked and coordinating together and thinking some kind of swarm intelligence. You know. so Any getting, key observations there that, you, that are worth mentioning? Well, we just started just a few weeks ago on this grant, so no real results yet, but... Um, but some preliminary data suggests that there are some equilibrium, these equilibria that form that's pretty interesting. Like, you know, in space there are these special spots in the orbit where you're kind of stable. They like to park telescopes there. In schools of fish, there seem to be these spots where it's pretty economic to, to stay there, that you could actually just sit there in the school and do very little and get carried along by the school. And so searching for those points could, is interesting because it means those are kind of sweet spots where you'd want to swim in a school. So I haven't seen this, or I haven't studied it with schools of fish, but I've seen it with flocks of birds, people studying this. Yeah. And uh, often, and this somewhat translates to like studying the stock market, but I've heard mm. you don't want to follow the flock of birds. You want to find that one bird that everyone else is following. <laughs> and, and someone did a study where I think they were looking at the density or proximity, and whichever birds were closest together, those would often be the ones that would start this change of direction, and then mm. it would just percolate or nucleate, and everyone else would begin following in air. So I wonder if it's when you're in a fluid environment, do those things change? Is it, you know, acoustic transmissions at different rates? And I, and then I don't know if it's electricity or if that's only sharks, but there's all these different ways that you can sense things, I think, in the water that may be different than air. Yeah, like fish have this, it's called the lateral line, yeah, where yeah. they're looking for little pressure differences. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. one of the main ways they use to sense. Yeah, especially like muddy water where they can't yeah, see. Yeah, right. Yeah, vision is probably not mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. dominant. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. honestly, it's biologists still don't really know in fish schools. That's that's one of the big reasons we got this grant. We don't know how much how fish are staying in these tight schools. You see these big schools of fish; they're very synchronized. You know how much of that is vision based? How much of that is, are they sensing the flow around them through this mm-hmm. lateral line? Uh, we we just don't really know. I mean, you know. I'm going to get on a tangent for a second yeah. here. But uh, on that, what, what you just said reminds me just in general um, from what it seems, how little we really know about the oceans, yeah. uh, broadly speaking. And that to me just fascinates me. And in some ways we know more about sp- outer space than we do about the you know abyss beneath us. And, yeah, in uh, many ways. Yeah, I just, I, I find that, a, so your research as it relates to that is incredibly interesting. Even, you know, the... The, the glimpses uh, of clarity that we get from how yeah, fish move autonomously. Um, and I'm just curious um, how much thought you've applied to that. Have you spent a lot of time on the water yourself? Or are, are you digging uh, uh, into scuba diving? No, I mean, I, ironically, I, I don't, I've never gone scuba diving. I, 
I'm not, I can swim, but, uh, you know. That was I'm my next question. I was worried you were going to say, yeah, I can't swim. But, so that's good. We can yeah. check that one off. Well, yeah. <laughs> File that under irony. you got a fluid dynamics guy can't right. swim. But, um, <clears throat> in theory. Well, those who can't teach, right? That's the, yeah. the age old. But, um, no, it's, it's mostly just a, I'm interested in the subject matter. I'm interested in, you know, I, but, but yeah, I've never, I don't know. It's kind of a coincidence, I guess, because I've never really been a, a big water sports kind of person. Well, I mean, has, has your research had, has it seen you thinking more intently about uh, what we were just talking about? Just the vast unknown that is the ocean. And oh the, yeah. No, I mean, that's the vast unknown. That's definitely what's, what keeps me getting up in the morning that, um, yeah, I think especially vast unknowns that are right in front of us that really, you know, that there's a lot of things we don't even know about rivers near us, you know, and oceans near us. Just, I don't know, that really boggles my mind. That, And you don't even have to go to the ocean. I mean, there's things we don't understand at the molecular level, like right in front of you. But you don't have to go to space. I mean, I feel like we can probably learn more about, I mean about outer space by studying the oceans in some respects, wouldn't you agree? Or Maybe. <laughs> completely different. I mean, we're, we're looking at completely different environments, and I know that things react differently at the fluid level. Yeah. But um, uh, just it's another alien world, right? Right. So I'm curious, when you were working with the zoologists, yeah. people in biology, what's there must have been some really interesting... Discussions. I'm wondering what was like the craziest idea mm. on the biology side of some discussions you've had to understand yeah. their, their perspective on these fish versus engineering. I mean, a couple examples are coming to mind. Like, uh, one they had a project looking at shark skin and the different, you know, reduced mm-hmm. drag coming from shark skin. And that led to some very long and interesting discussions. You know, when I think skin, I'm thinking the roughness beneath the boundary layer of mm-hmm. fluid. And, you mm-hmm. know, they're kind of thinking from the other side, the structures coming mm-hmm. up from under the mm-hmm. skin, resulting in these structures mm-hmm. on the skin. Mm-hmm. So it almost felt like we were coming at it from mm-hmm. two different sides and meeting at the, at the skin, which is led to some interesting thoughts. All I know about shark skin is that they have, don't they have uh, minuscule teeth, yeah, effectively, yeah, or barbs? D- yeah. Denticles, that's what yeah. they're called, uh, on the outside. that uh, so They're just sh- sharp all over. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, what's know? different about the underside? Well, I like the structures supporting these things, you know, and uh, and people wonder about whether structures like that are have any actuation like in that case no but there are these little finlets on tuna that almost look like tiny little scales that actually they can actuate with little muscles and so that's what i mean by coming from the underneath you know are these little structures actuated how do they get there yeah are these things connected to muscle i'd be curious Mm. about that not the denticles i don't think but Uh but like the little finlets look like little i mean yeah because you know uh well mammals if they get cold you know yeah, hair right stands up right yeah, so awesome. yeah. I, I wonder if there's something similar in the water yeah hmm. 
so you focus mainly on they are basically like a like a robotic tuna correct the, yeah uh, any other I, I, I'm, I'm, I probably should have looked up more biological terms about any other clades or forms of fish that yeah. uh, that you've observed that uh, again on a dynamic level yeah there's I mean there, uh, affect your research or there are whole sessions at these conferences I go to on all kinds of different swimming animals you know people looking at uh, sea lions people looking at jellyfish um, manta rays lots of eel-like swimmers, they all have, you know, people are looking for different advantages. Like jellyfish, you know, they're not going to win any races, but uh, they're very simple. They're, you could have maybe thousands of little robo-jellies out mapping the oceans, you know, because they're, they're cheap and quiet. And, and then if you wanted something much you know, higher speed, you want something like an apex predator, like a tuna. Uh, if you want to study the surface of something, Stingrays are really good swimmers along surfaces, so you know, I can study the surface of a ship or the. So are you saying we could deploy a bunch of uh, uh, jellyfish out of yeah. a hypersonic missile <laughs> head? <laughs> navigate. Uh, yeah, a lot of. It, so along those lines, um, I think you mentioned you're usually one of the few engineers that go to these biology conferences what what's the what? ratio these days is it growing more engineers going to I think these? it's it's mixing more mm-hmm. and more I mean the 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 professor I work for at at the museum you know and he gave one of the keynote talks at this big fluids conference I go to a few mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. so there's more and more of that going on hmm. so you've um did you spend some time this morning over at the AME center so you've uh have you talked to any of our aero propulsion guys by chance? So we met Raj and Kumar at lunch, and he got to see the polysonic wind tunnel. Yeah. Ah, good. Okay. What was your What was your impression of the wind tunnel here? Just curious. It's amazing. I mean, we you know we don't have a facility like that. Um, that's that you're able to get that range of Mach numbers, and for long times. I mean, they were saying they're Mach five up to like 15 seconds. I know it doesn't. For some, that's not a long time, but that's a long time to to run a test at that incredible speed so well i, I know you did your postdoc work at stanford um studying the turbulent flows of uh of bird movements yeah. um what can you tell us about that which is why i brought this up the t- studying the birds yes yeah. well they don't fly at mach 5 but they uh they one of the things I was studying about them that's so remarkable is their their head stabilization. They've got all these different muscles in their neck to keep their head really stable because they're you know flapping several times every second and and yet they're able to keep their eye really f- uh, you know dead reckoned on their target perch with all these really advanced muscles in their neck. So that's a that's remarkable on its own that they can just fly then and then we were studying in gusts so these birds encountering this lateral gust and what they do is they'll crab into the wind it's called crabbing when an aircraft does this where they'll a fixed wing aircraft does this where they kind of yaw a little bit towards the wind while they're landing the birds will do this too they'll they'll yaw their wings toward the gust except they're also continuing to keep themselves aloft you know flapping and keeping their head target on the 
on the perch. So they're kind of doing all these three different things at once. So they're very good flyers. So yeah, I remember the PNAS paper. I was mm-hmm. reading through that. So the the idea is then it's more visual. They want to keep their eye on the target. Probably not as much aerodynamic with the head. Right. It's more, mostly not. in the yeah. wings. So mostly visual. So they yeah, I think find they're the target. Right. That way they can keep a really solid visual target, mm-hmm. but and have the rest of their body worry about offsetting mm-hmm. the gust. Mm-hmm. I w- and I I can't remember now but i know you did different uh lighting scenarios uh like reasonable lighting down to cave yeah um i think they were still able to pick up so i think maybe you had a spotlight yeah at that location so was there any differences between those so not really the there's a co-author on the paper daniel crest who he studies bird vision and so he was really interested in setting up these different visual environments thinking that it would have this big effect. But really, whether it was the, we had a lake-like condition, a forest-like condition, and then we called it the cave, or it's just this point light that they're mm-hmm. going to. But in all of the cases, you know, they're, they complete the task really all of the time. They flew a little bit slower in the cave, but, you know, they still offset the gust just as effectively. What was roughly the scale of the environment they were in? How big was it's this? It's pretty small. They're like, uh, you know just across a room maybe uh-huh. okay you know five meters or so okay and i remember that i think there was some training before the real test that you guys did with the birds how, how yeah, did you go the... about <laughs> getting a you know an objective test because i guess you need to at least you got to train the birds somehow so why did they <laughs> want to go to this place anyway yeah. right so a lot of animal labs use a startle response where you you know you kind of poke Mm-hmm. poke the bird and get them to fly. Mm-hmm. In this lab where I was working, one of the the mantras of this lab was we were going to try to do non, you know, only positive reinforcement, no startle response. Because if you startle an animal, you know, like you're saying, is that a real is that a realistic condition? So we we use traditional, uh, you know, reinforcement learning, clicker training. So all everyone in the lab, postdocs included, learned how to clicker train birds and. You know, we we train them to fly from point to point and wow. click, give them seeds. Wow! So they were flying because because they wanted seeds. Oh, so you were conditioning them in real time. Yeah, I mean, before the experiment, they would be trained to to do this. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to train them? Um, a long time. I mean, there it builds on each other. So by the time I got there, these birds were pretty well trained to do a mm-hmm. variety of tasks, mm-hmm. and they're um, so they're you know ready to learn new things. But they're, you can tell the birds are, it, you can tell it's kind of working because when you go into the aviary, all the birds kind of sidle up to the front of the cage they're because they're hoping that they'll get chosen <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they get to fly around and get a bunch of seeds. So it's definitely not a, it's a different environment. So that reminds me, coming back to fish, there was something I, I heard in just like, I don't know, it's New York Times or something a while back on uh I think it's goldfish or some aquarium fish can recognize human faces. Mm. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yeah. So did, when that when that come out, or maybe scientists already knew about that, but did that change anyone's thoughts on how much visual is used, like in schools of mm. fish? If, I mean, if you can recognize me, that seems like pretty good vision. Yeah, that's true. I haven't heard anyone apply that to mm-hmm. that paper to schools, but... 
but you're right that if if the vision can pick out faces, mm-hmm. surely it ought to be able to tell where another fish is. Mm-hmm. So how do you train fish? <laughs> I don't. I've never seen anyone try to train a fish. Yeah. I don't know if they've got the the same cognitive potential as birds. Uh, so from but a, I, I'm sorry, sorry, I think in that paper there was some people that were not as nice to the fish. Maybe they were tapping on <laughs> and uh, the fish just really didn't like these people when they huh. come in. So to some degree, maybe That's you can. a form of training. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Get some, some work on that. <laughs> so uh, from a flow perspective, yeah. you've worked now with... Uh, with both aerial and aquatic yeah. animals, um, any interesting observations on similarities, differences, uh, compelling takeaways there? Yeah, I mean, for for me who studies the the equations of fluid dynamics, it's uh, it's remarkably similar. I mean, we in the class I teach, we define air as a fluid and water as a fluid. We just say all anything that flows is a fluid, and it's really the same. Equations governing both. The difference is air, you know, is about a thousand times less dense. But so you just put a different density in the equations, and it's the same math. So it, it's interesting to look for those parallels. I mean, from a practical standpoint, you end up having to design very differently because a thousand times less dense—that's a big—that's a big deal if you're trying to design a robot to move through the space. So while mathematically they, there's a lot of overlap, the design challenge becomes very different. So, yeah, I mean, we, we always find interesting parallels between, like, manta rays are almost flying like birds. You know, they've got these nice triangular fins that they flap up and down, and we see a lot of the same types of flow structures behind them than you do a bird. Yeah. I think it was brought up at lunch about these flying fish. I guess you haven't looked at that, or I don't know if no. anyone has, and... I don't know what motivates that besides... I know I just locally here, you can go to one of the clear water uh, springs and you'll you'll see some fish will jump up. But I think there it's a behavior. I think they get these mites on them. So if they jump out of the water, they can flex the right way and try to remove these things. But I don't know if it's different in ocean water. I mean, why... What motivates them to jump out of the water? Do you know? No, I don't. Like, why do they... Unless are they why evading stay? predators or showing That's off okay. or yeah. sexual selection? I, I don't, don't know. know. I have no idea why flying fish jump out. Maybe it's just fun. Well, I don't know, I don't know much about it, but uh, I know that they're not actually flying. Um, they are... I'm looking it up right now on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh yeah, they're Let's not. See, they're, uh, well, they like cannot fly fish. in the same way a bird does. Flying yeah. fish can make a powerful, self-propelled leaps out of the water, where yeah. their long wing-like fins enable gliding for considerable distance above the water surface. Okay, tell me something I don't know. Ah, the main reason for this behavior mm-hmm. is thought to be to escape from underwater predators, which oh. includes swordfish, mackerel, tuna, and marlin, among others. Though their periods of flight expose them to attack by avian predators, uh, such as frigate birds, that uh, would be a bad day. <laughs> if you're trying to evade predator underwater and yeah. get, get taken out by one above water. Yeah. Unfortunate. 
It's interesting how uh, adaptation works, too, because in this case, it's kind of one of those damned if you do, damned yeah. if you don't things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, evolution's not perfect. Um, sometimes uh, it just kind of goes to show that you know, there's always a bigger fish, um, or bird in this case. Um, so, Dan, uh, yeah. we've been talking to you a lot about animals and fish. I'm just curious. I mean, did you grow up with a fascination for... I mean, I know you're a fluids guy yeah. and you're a physics guy, but uh, did you have any kind of lifelong fascination with <laughs> the animal kingdom that that drew you to this specific? I mean, we had fish growing up, but but honestly, it's really more the I I got really interested in fluid dynamics and and this is an area where we have a lot of fluid dynamics that we don't understand. So. Um, you know, like you mentioned space, you know, we think, oh, what's the fluid dynamics we don't understand? It must be big and far away, but but actually we don't understand a lot about how the, the air and the water are moving around things that flap very fast back and forth. So that's like fish and birds. So that's really what drew, drew me to it is, is a love of fluid dynamics and then looking for unsolved, interesting mysteries in fluid dynamics. And the biological world offers a lot of them. So I'm curious going even further back than that. Yeah. Like when you're going, uh, so you grew up near Charlottesville, right? How, how far Couple, away? Two hours two north. Hours? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, growing up through whether it's kindergarten, grade school, when did you start thinking about going into science, engineering, yeah. mathematics, kindergarten. birds? No, no. Um, I mean, I, I had a... I didn't know for a long time. I mean, I think that's pretty normal. I hope I, I went to, I applied to some colleges. Uh, I didn't know whether I wanted to do engineering or not. So I applied to a couple engineering schools and a couple non-engineering schools and then decided, no, I definitely don't want to do engineering. So I turned down the engineering schools and went to UVA for, I wanted to do astrophysics. That was my plan. But then a year in, I, I ended up, changing my mind again and wanted to do engineering so went back to the engineering school chose aerospace engineering because it seemed like the closest thing to astrophysics and then spent a summer in this lab with fish robots and then changed it all over again so actually no this is this is really cool this is what i want to do and then eventually that time it it stuck okay yeah it's funny how those things work it's pretty similar to me uh, I, I had a pretty good idea. I was going to go into engineering when I started, but I, I didn't go straight to Georgia Tech. I did a dual degree with a smaller school. Um, but then at the time when I had to transfer in, I had to select a major. And there was a, this list here, and I was looking at this thing. This was this is before the interwebs, so yeah. I couldn't look up what civil engineering <laughs> was. I didn't even know what, what civil engineering, what does that mean? It didn't. It didn't make sense to me that that was building bridges and structures. So I was like, well, that's out. And I didn't really understand electricity well enough because I couldn't see it. And uh, my dad was a diesel mechanic. So it's like, well, this mechanical thing, at least I've heard that word. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so it's got to be much harder on students now. So much, so much information. information. Yeah. How do you make a decision on anything? When I do, it's like, oh yeah, my dad was a diesel mechanic, <laughs> so I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. Done. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Hmm. So you you got interested. This was a undergrad that you were in this lab. Yeah. Okay. And I'll add the other thing that really drew me to it. I was in the I was president of the filmmaker society. I was really into filmmaking and okay. video and audiovisual, you know, art. And working in a fluid dynamics lab, it sometimes looks like a movie studio. Like my lab now, we've got all these cameras and lasers and yeah, lights and beautiful art. We turn off the lights, you know. Sometimes we even say action, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because you know you're, you're, it's a very visually, uh, you know, compelling field. You, you really need to th- understand how the fluid is moving, and that really drew me to it too. It was al- there was almost an element of art in the in this engineering lab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should get you in contact with our film school. Yeah. I think FSU has a really good film school. All right. Build a collaboration there. Yeah. I've often thought... Put that on the IMAX. Right. Or in virtual reality. I think there's some yeah. potential for yeah. fluid dynamics in virtual yeah, reality. Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting work now on haptics and touch. Yep. And can you put yourself in a wind tunnel in <laughs> virtual reality? So, yeah. yeah. A lot of cool things. I'm interested on the comment with the inter- intersection of engineering and art mm-hmm. um, I mean, Billy you're a mathematician and you know you're a fractals guy there's mm-hmm. many people mm-hmm. for whom fractals are just you know screensavers mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they're, they're just art to people um, and uh, I don't think of you science types as being uh, <laughs> the artsy uh, mm-hmm. crowd but uh, I can certainly see elements of that in the work uh, as presented um, so, Dan, you mentioned you were into filmmaking growing up. Um, yeah. What what experiences have you had in that realm? Uh, well, my favorite thing back then was competitive filmmaking, where we'd get, uh, there's this competition every year, you'd get 72 hours to make a short film, and then you'd, you'd be given some, like a line of dialogue you had to use, a genre, and then you'd have a team, and you just stay up for three days straight. So that was kind of how I got hooked on filmmaking. Oh, right. so is this out on YouTube somewhere? I, I think I made them unlisted now that I teach. <laughs> now that I have a lot of students looking, but uh, I can show you something. So someday. was this in before college? This is during college, yeah. Okay, undergrad? Yeah, okay. this is how I met okay. my now wife. We were oh. both in, in the Filmmakers Club, uh, and uh-huh. we did these competitive challenges together. And, uh, uh, that's cool. So what was the uh, film on? Well, we did it. Three years in a row, we had to make a horror movie one year about uh-huh. uh, a girl who, who <laughs> kills her boyfriend. Oh, perfect. Now, <laughs> not, not giving her some inspiration. <laughs> huh? And uh, and then we did one about the sort of a feel-good one about the post office sending letters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. Send you a link. Okay. <laughs> so you got one for ID... Uh, TV and then the Hallmark station. It yeah. sounds like so. Yeah, that's pretty broad horror and uh, romance. So, yeah. Do you ever think you could have, if, if life had turned out differently for you, continued in that field? Yeah, I do think about that a lot. Um, you know, had I gone, I thought, certainly thought about changing everything, going to film school. Um, I miss, I do miss it, but but it's also it's become such a I think visual storytelling has just become more and more important every year since then. And so I don't find that I 
it's not that I don't use it anymore. I mean, I'm not using it for artistic purposes, but I'm still making movies all the time for my class and for research and little animations here, or, or even just giving a presentation. You know, they're kind of these micro movies. Maybe that's just something I tell myself to comfort myself. Oh, you didn't leave filmmaking behind, Dan. You, you still do it. But. <laughs> oh, I think that's a great way to motivate and educate students. Yeah. You can create some, some really interesting videos and yeah. students interested. So working in, uh, in line with that, working in academia, mm. do you think that the visual component in education is a lot more prominent than when any of us were in school, perhaps? I do, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether it's purely a function of just the technology is better now, that me as a complete amateur can make pretty good movies, you know, like little short animations and clips that was really not possible before, um, or whether the academic culture has changed, where that's more expected. I, I don't really know, but but I do think now there's a lot more visual visual aids in teaching than there was. So, are there any special tools you use, or is it all sorts of different software you put together and um, use together? I use Mathematica a lot to make mm-hmm. a- a- animations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use Premiere to do video editing. So nothing too unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the challenges that you see, uh, now that we're talking about education specifically, yeah. uh, just as an educator at the uh, at the college level, uh, any pressing challenges you've noticed across mm-hmm. the, the, the nationwide academia circuit? Yeah, there's, I mean... Teaching is hard. I could talk for a long time about teaching challenges. I think in engineering, the big challenge, the biggest challenge is always students. They want, you know, they a lot of them want to be practicing engineers. They want to learn how to build something. They don't, they don't really sometimes see the value in learning some mathematical derivation of something if they think, well, I'm never going to use this on the job. And part of what makes it a hard challenge is they have a very good point. I mean... <laughs> you know, they're right. They're probably never going to use this derivation that I'm teaching them directly. So you have to find ways that to to show them that what, you know, what they're going to come out of it, I hope, is a deeper physical under- appreciation for what's going on in the system. And maybe they won't need the derivation, but they'll understand the assumptions that went into it. And so that as they use these software packages in the future or models, they'll kind of understand what went into it and it'll help them make better design decisions. Yeah, it's a good point. It, it seems like, I think, overall, uh, we can teach them these tools and some of these general tools they'll use. A lot of them, they're not, I agree, they're not going to directly use, mm-hmm. right? But um, figuring out when they use these tools, do they get the right answer? Can they trust that answer? Seems like that's some of the hardest parts. Is yeah. can you check yourself and at least tell me, okay, I here's my work, but as my kids would say, this looks kind of sus. Yeah. On this answer, right? <laughs> Versus, okay, yeah, I'm confident, I got this right, and here's why. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once once you can do that, I think you should be able to graduate. Yeah. So, what do you think the biggest lesson for a uh, an emerging engineer can learn uh, right out of uh, right after graduation. What's the biggest 
thing they can learn? Well, what, what, what's the biggest? Uh, I think I just asked my question in reverse. <laughs> what's the What's the most important lesson do you think uh, emerging engineers should take away mm. from their you know, forty eight years of school? <laughs> oh, four to eight. I thought you said forty eight. <laughs> forty eight. <laughs> it's a crash course. Yeah. Uh, um, I think just to to question to ask a lot of questions. I think. I think people come into engineering, I don't know, I think too many people kind of get in this smile and nod mentality where they don't quite understand something, but they just kind of yeah. go, go along with it. I can believe that. We see that a lot. <laughs> and I don't know that it's particularly engineering, but... <laughs> right. But I think it's very, it has some life or death consequences in engineering if you kind of smile a nod and you're responsible for some safety system, you know, that you really needed to understand better. And... Some of it, I think, is just an imposter syndrome uh, side effect where people are afraid to admit they don't know. But but I guess I think of engineering as a lot about asking questions and problem solving and figuring out what the question is and then answering it. And, and that's what I hope they take away from it is just getting really practiced at asking the right questions. Yeah, especially that last right part, the asking the right questions, right? Because for four, hopefully more closely to four years than eight, um, at least for the undergrad, but, you know, we give them so many well, it's questions. It's combining grad and undergrad. Got it. Yeah, okay. All right. Things. Yeah. Yeah. So PhD, eight years, that, that's pretty I'm great. being optimistic about most people's education track. Yeah. Um, um, but... We give them all these questions, and then eventually, I think, by the time they're seniors, they can answer most of them. But we do some design work where they have to do that. But, yeah, ask still, it's a struggle because there's an infinite number of questions we yeah. can ask as a researcher. So figuring out that that one bird in the flock, which question is the most interesting yeah. to ask, is a challenge because you don't know the answer. Right, uh, but is it is it an interesting question to answer in the first place? Yeah. Awkward silence. Sorry, I didn't write down that any questions, so we're going on the fly. No, <laughs> silence is good. <laughs> Awkward silence can be good sometimes. It's good to have a contemplative moment. Yeah. In between the noise, I actually don't believe that it. Every void of silence needs to be filled with random utterances. Um, that's how a lot of conversations with my wife go. Mm. Well, we'll have very deep, thoughtful conversations sometimes, and then we'll just have a a pause. And she does not like that at all. Oh, interesting. She goes, there's there's something wrong if there's a little bit of silence. And, and I, for I me, that's the forever. That's the moment. Well, that, that's the only time I have to think. <laughs> Yeah, when I was, 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 that's the, when the understanding comes. Those silent moments. Those silent moments. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you're just waiting for the other person to stop talking, so then you can start talking, mm. and you listen to nothing. And sometimes, you know, you can tell when that's happening. So. Well, um, it's, you probably just called me out on my, my <laughs> communication with my wife. Um, she doesn't listen to this podcast, so that's why. Um, <laughs> no, that's definitely why that I never understood growing up why men have a reputation for 
not listening to their spouses until I became a spouse. And I caught myself doing that where it's like Charlie Brown talk with my wife. Sometimes she'll, she'll be saying something that's probably important. <laughs> it's just like, womp, womp, womp. And I'll, like you said, Dan kind of nod my head and pretend to understand because I'm focused on a million other things and realize I'm being very, um, <laughs> very rude. Um, but I digress. Well, it's easier when you're younger, you'll probably remember it longer or if you hear it. But if I listen and like, okay, um, the kids have a soccer game tomorrow. Uh, but I can ask my wife again if I forget. But uh, sometimes that's taken the wrong way. If you, if you do forget, that can be interpreted as, oh, you're just not mm, even you're just listening, not listening in yeah. the first place, right? Well, that's another thing is we, you know, uh, I know that the absent-minded professor is also a a, a historic trope for a reason. Uh, And it's not obviously because you're not listening. It's because you have a multitude of thoughts in your head, you know, alternating between one and the other at at all times. And um, so speaking of that, so how many students do you have in your lab right now? um, We have... Three grad students and two postdocs right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And so, since of course you have background uh, birds and underwater, yeah. is is all your work focused like underwater or above water right now? Do you have different projects? Yeah, we have going on a few different projects. I mean, the the grant money's been coming in for the underwater robots so that that drives a lot. But uh, with my startup package at UVA, we we did some aerial. Uh, Drones looking at quad rotors in ground effect and mm-hmm. how they interact mm-hmm. with surfaces like the mm-hmm. ground or the ceiling or sidewalls. And we also had a project looking at something totally different, which is uh, imp- implantable body flow sensors. So I came to, during my interview, I was talking with someone who did body sensors. They were on the electrical side, talking about implantable sensors. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, you sometimes look for overlap mm-hmm. in some areas and we were like, well, wait a second, there's flows in the body. So we started thinking about how you might design a... Talking about human subjects? Yes, it's now totally <laughs> pivoting, sorry. Okay, I know, I just <laughs> wanted to make sure I was following. Yeah, so we've, been, we've had a project for a few years now looking at how you might design a sensor that sits inside someone's airway mm-hmm. and looks for the telltale signs of some chronic respiratory problem, like maybe oh, an yeah. asthma attack. Yeah, well, I could use I, that. I wanted to... I had that on my list to read, and I didn't get a chance to read that one. So, yeah, I noticed that was uh, at least somewhat applicable to asthma. Yeah. Um, so how does that work? How do you, uh, do you try to predict some onset of asthma attack? Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, kind of coming at it from the engineering fluid side, so thinking about how you would design and install this little sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds very different than fish, but, like, you know, like I said, the math is, is pretty similar, and it's still a flexible structure that's, instead of putting energy in, it's taking energy out. So we have this little flexible, almost like a hair, that sits inside on this sensor, and as the air moves this hair back and forth, you pick that up in the signal. And then we've been working with a throat surgeon to think of ways you'd install it, and he mm-hmm. actually ha- has done a test case on, on a rabbit, and... Uh, you know, it picks up the breathing signal. So now, at this point in the project, we'd, we'd think about what could you do with that data? How would you feed it into some algorithm that's looking for the, 
uh, an oncoming asthma attack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because some severe asthmatics, they can't tell that their lung function is deteriorating until it's really too late. And you don't need a whole lot of warning. If you could just have a few minutes to get mm-hmm. to your inhaler, to, you know, start going through the asthma plan, it might make a big difference. So, so are these piezo-resistive wires or electric? Piezoelectric or Yeah, we, we've tried a couple different things. One is just a little piezo, piezo-resistive, so mm-hmm. just picking up the voltage change on a piezo. Mm-hmm. The, the one that's been even more promising is just it's almost like a little hot wire. It's just looking for... S- little temperature changes okay as the air moves over it so then uh for that one you'd have to power it i guess yeah that one would be powered uh-huh. but the piezo has like you're getting to the, yeah you could potentially do self-powered where it's actually harvesting energy from the person's breath to recharge its own battery which would be pretty cool mm-hmm. and then is it wireless or would that be the idea yeah both of these the idea would be that mm-hmm. it would be wireless mm-hmm. Okay. And you probably anticipated this question coming, but uh, what are the safety and health considerations of this implant? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're nowhere near. It's not like we're we're talking with. It's not like we're seeking investors to. Yeah, you're not in the R and D phase yet. To put this into the market. We're just kind of exploring. You know, hey, what would this even something like this even be possible? But of course, we want to think about that. We've got a lot of you know pulmonary doctors on the team thinking about safety issues and. But honestly, I, I'm more worried than they are. I mean, they say, you know, things you, things just scar over. And, like, you know, you make a small incision, you put it in, and then it would just scar over. And even if it came out, I was like, oh, that would be the end of it. But they say, oh, you just cough it out. <laughs> I don't know. These surgeons, I mean, they they think about these things a little differently. And to them, I think maybe have, having seen the resilience of the body, they're, they're less worried about these kinds of things. Well, and I assume there's usually a cost-benefit uh, or a level of that when they make these determinations. And, uh, you know, a small implant, even if it did get stuck in the body, may not have any long-term negative side effects, you know, as opposed to what you can actually... If it can, if it can help to prevent somebody from having a life-threatening asthma attack, I, I think that that's obviously worth it. Yeah, um, absolutely. But in the beginning, the target... Ought- users of these would be people who have really run out of other options and you know to them they're extremely high risk patients you know that adding a little extra risk is, is really a non-issue so now we're talking about the subject of cyborgs basically i love how we pivoted onto this <laughs> um i'd like to talk a little bit more about it because it's an it's just one of those those sci-fi concepts that that, that really interests me one um, me if I could ask one, just one question, I'm, I'm still curious about the asthma side because I, yeah. I haven't really thought that much on the the cause or the source of why this happened. So I guess at least indirectly, you've probably looked at this. Is it is it just there's part of the lung function that you have the sacs collapse and you can't get air into it and you lose your surface area to volume and you can't exchange. Or is it chemical? You can't exchange oxygen. Do you, no, do you know? I, I, I know a little bit. So I, you know, I don't mm-hmm. want to go too far. In, but mm-hmm. it, but it's more of a physical thing. It's not. It's okay. that the, the areas are actually constricting, so that okay. you're not able to get the, you know, the same flow mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. same muscle input, mm-hmm. and that sometimes it can even take on the scale of days where 
for whatever reason, it will start to decrease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you may not pick it up, especially if you're not someone who does a lot of physical activity. Mm -hmm. You may not be noticing, you know, if you only use 20% of your lung function as you as your yeah. max drops from 180, 70, you know, you're not going to notice. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. whereas the sensor might be able to pick up that slight difference. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Sorry, I didn't so, get... No, no, it's fine. track with cyborgs. my high... I, I was getting really excited about my high concept question here. But, yeah, yeah, cyborgs. Uh, no, we, Let's hear it. Well... Aren't, so have we already there, though? Right? Well, we kind of are, and that's right? kind of what I was going to ask you. Know, being involved with this, even at this preliminary stage, yeah. uh, where do you see you know us as a species moving toward? Do you see more integration with cyber physical systems on a practical level for the average person? Uh, you know, twenty, thirty years from now, uh, as Professor Oates noted, I mean, we're kind of there. I mean, I've heard about people who have optic implants. Um, I don't know how advanced they are. I mean, I've been hearing about it for about 20 years now. Um, but it does seem that on the biomedical side, we are uh, certainly becoming a lot more open-minded to uh, these new technologies. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, I won't pretend that Asthma is, you know, what, what I consider the end. I mean, I think we started there because that's uh, that's an immediate, a more near-term application. But I think in the future, we could absolutely put something like this into healthy patients. Uh, you know, imagine, uh, you know, athletes who want to track their, their breathing during some, uh, you know, during practice, especially in a case where it's really hard to wear, say, a, a nasal cannula, like sometimes runners do this, but a swimmer, you know, you can't, there's really no way you can currently track your breathing as a swimmer. But imagine if you could get this real-time right. data after the fact and you and your coach could look at this. Or, you know, imagine if for you know, if I'm really stressed and I had some kind of real-time feedback on my breath and could go through some kind of mindfulness exercise with this real... I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for if you had that real-time data stream of your own breath. Well, like a neural heads-up display or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, um, I think there's any even interesting things like uh, breathing through your nose versus your mouth, right? The, yeah. the flow passageway. I, I just noticed, you know, when we were talking earlier about triathlons, uh, I can get another gear if I'm cognizant of breathing through my nose, mm-hmm. uh, at least when I'm on the bike or run. Uh, so it makes this huge difference in function. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you... Or maybe you've looked into this, but I think if you're breathing through the nasal cavity, I assume the path of the air is longer, and maybe you get a better exchange. I, but it still has to go through the lung, so I don't know. I've never looked carefully at why that would make a difference. Yeah, I don't know, but that's an interesting question. Is could a sensor pick up and detect whether you're breathing through your nose or your mm-hmm. mouth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, but that's I, one major. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Dan. What were you going to oh, say? Oh no, I was just saying. But I'm definitely a believer in the future you're describing. And as soon as I can put one of these in my in my throat, I'm going to put one in there. So. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> you can go first. Uh, you can be the guinea pig. Um, I guess uh, since we're kind of building up to this, and I, I know our, our time is somewhat limited now, um, based on the cumulus of your research and where you're at now. Um, 
I guess what, what, what do you see from an engineering standpoint is, you know, one of the foremost uh, problems that we as a, as a people need to, to work to solve? Hmm. I know, big open and question. Open-ended question, question yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think we need to learn to to get along better, <laughs> and I think that there's probably some something that engineers can bring to that table. You know, building spaces and machines that are you know bridge builders and not dividing us. It's kind of a high-level answer to your high-level question. Well, I mean, we, we, well, it, it's interesting. I mean, we, we, it is somewhat related to engineering because right now a lot of the reason why, um, in my opinion, my layperson's opinion, why we have so much division is directly a result of the algorithmic programming of our intelligence systems, which you see expressed in, you know, for instance, me and Professor Rose have talked about this a lot before, but you know, social media is kind of one of the big culprits. Mm-hmm. Is there something engineers could do to... Um, to kind of reverse what we now see uh, sort of unraveling uh, in that sphere of influence. So I have a podcast that talks about engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, think, go I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big science lover, so I guess I'm biased, but I think science in general is a good bridge builder you know we're kind of all working towards this common goal of understanding the world around us like the oceans you're saying you know that that's something that you know we can all kind of get behind is understanding the planet so i remember when i was an assistant professor and we would interview other faculty coming in and i'd ask them you know if you were the last person on (laughs) earth would you come in the lab to do your work (laughs) And I used to think you should answer yes. That's the kind of person we want. And then, you know, later after I started thinking about this, I was like, well, if you're going to design an airplane, who's going to fly on it, mm-hmm. right? But I, I keep going back and forth on that because I think, you know, as you're starting out, you can really dig deep and solve some interesting problems. And if that's focused on helping other people, then yeah. Maybe you should really focus hard on those things um, if it's directed in the right way, right? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're focused, uh, you know, helps humanity. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. So a more narrow uh, version of the question yeah. I just asked. So you're about to give a, a seminar talk here on uh, the, the subject matter we've just discussed uh, in about 45 minutes here. Um, what do you most hope that uh our students can take away from your research and apply to their own? Uh, One of the the messages I end with is, uh, I'll give you a preview, because I hope it's one thing the students will take away, is that in the, as engineers, we often think of what can inspire our designs, like I study bio-inspired design, so I often fall into the trap, and I think many of my colleagues do, of thinking as biology as this source only of inspiration, and then we build our robots, and then, okay, biologists, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> but but actually, it, it, it kind of goes both ways. Some people have started talking about not just bio-inspired engineering, but robo-inspired biology, that you, you learn about 
you know, you, you draw inspiration and you design these machines, but you can use that to go back and learn more about the systems that inspired the machines. And I think we really need to set up a system more like that because that gives us a much more holistic view of what we're trying to do here is just understand the universe. And I think if we fall into this trap of just trying to build better and better machines, then we kind of get to that doomsday scenario I was describing where we just get more and more divided. And we forget yeah, what it's all about. I was wondering earlier when you were talking about schools of fish, can you get to the point where you can uh, put a mole in the <laughs> school of fish and then have it communicate and then understand what the other fish are doing and, you know, learn quite a bit more probably if, yeah. if you could uh, get to that level. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because that seems to be, that's, that's really the, the essence of, you know, interdisciplinary research, and I think that's great that you mentioned the contrast of, you know, bio-inspired robotics as opposed to robotics-inspired mm-hmm. biology. Um, you know, here at FSU, we have a consortium called uh, Collaborative Collision, where mm. uh, scientists from uh, disciplines uh, across the board uh, convene together on are actually assigned uh, projects that they then have to work together on. Um, and uh, it does seem that more institutions are moving in that direction. Um, so it, it sounds like uh, what you're hoping our students take away from it is in line with uh, the, the consensus that we're trying to move toward um, just as academics. Yeah, right. Just zoom out, you know, think about the questions you're asking and don't just get lost and building a better mousetrap well said well Billy do you have any uh, we, we have a few minutes left any any uh, pressing thoughts that you're uh, that any, you need uh, to address with Dr. Quinn while we have the man captive I think so any any final thoughts on your end no I think you've you've tapped me out <laughs> given you every <laughs> just, thought I have just in time to give for the man to give a seminar yeah well, well, folks, uh, thanks. At least, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I of course. It. Thanks for having me. It's good to uh, Big honor. hear all the things you're doing. All so, right. uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. It's been a pleasure meeting you, sir. Same to you. All right. And I'm about to do our intro or extra outro. That's the word. Mm. Whatever you want to call it, music here. Once I figure out how this thing works, here we go. And one and a two and a three and a. Mm.